I'd like to follow the uh, many weeks that, uh, that our morning gathering had with Sylvia, exploring the, the paramis or the um, perfections or core virtues that are one uh, type, of, that reflect one type of development that we uh, undergo in doing this practice, that we develop in qualities like uh, generosity and uh, mindfulness and um, wisdom uh, and so forth. And, and I know that I, I believe last time, last week, she finished with exploring particularly the last few among the list of paramis, which included uh, loving kindness and equanimity, particularly. And so, in a way, uh, I'd like to continue from that by exploring a very powerful teaching that really invites us to have uh, greater wisdom, greater compassion and loving kindness, and especially greater equanimity. And that's a teaching called the teaching of the eight worldly winds which I think I taught about several years ago. So I wanted to return to that, partly because it's a nice flow from uh, Sylvia's teaching. And my hope is to bring up the core parameters of the teaching, the basic uh, elements of the teaching today, and inspire all of us, including myself, to really focus on our practice with the eight worldly winds uh, next week, and then come back and uh, go into more depth on the teaching, but also share to a significant extent what our practice has been. So the, the teaching of the eight worldly winds is a teaching about the importance of focusing on eight different aspects of our experience. And those are, are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And the idea of the teaching is that these are like winds that blow us around. <laughs> that they can really um, be phenomena that when they come up, we can be knocked off balance. Typically by grabbing hold of the positive members of those four pairs and pushing away reactively the negative members of those four pairs by grabbing hold of pleasure or uh, gain or fame or praise and pushing away pain or loss or disrepute or, or blame. Uh, could also be called the uh, kind of the vicissitudes of life. And the, the term in the original Pali language is lokadama. Loka, generally translated as world, L-O-K-A, and Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, are a familiar term for many of us. Uh, he, in this context, meaning um, phenomena or conditions. And, and so the uh, term eight worldly winds is one translation. You'll also see it translated as the eight worldly conditions or the eight worldly dharmas, uh, Pema Chodron teaches a lot on this. And she talks about it as the eight worldly dharmas. She has a whole little chapter on it in the book, uh, When Things Fall Apart, which is uh, probably a familiar book to uh, many of us. 
And it's, um, it's a very central teaching, I think, in our practice. And it's very, for me, it's very intense and direct. It's basically saying, look at these things. They're important. We lose balance with them. Pay attention. <laughs> that's, that's how I've got it. I've got, oh, when I, cause I remember when I first heard it, it was very intense and direct. I said, whoa, that's a very direct teaching. They don't, didn't, don't mince words with that one. <laughs> you know. And so, it's, so we want, I want to have us explore that teaching, get a sense of how to practice with it, and why, it, why it's important. And it's particularly beloved in the uh, Tibetan tradition. Uh, I suspect because it sometimes get, gets really windy there. <laughs> so um, I thought I'd read a little bit from a text where it's expressed in the teachings of the Buddha. I, I don't actually often do this, but actually I think it's nice to actually read a short passage from a text. because You can see in a way how direct and simple these teachings are. Because the Buddha is basically going to ask, um, how do we work with how do we work with these eight conditions, and why are they important? So this is a teaching of the Buddha from a text called the Loka Vipati Sutta, sometimes translated as the Vicissitudes of Life. <laughs> these eight worldly conditions keep the world turning round. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions. Which eight? Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. For the uninstructed person, there arise gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. For a practitioner, there also arises gain, there also arise gain, loss, fame, disrepute, praise, blame, pleasure and pain. So what difference, what distinction What distinguishing factor is there between a practitioner and what's translated as the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person? (laughs) 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 A little bit of blame. I don't know. That's what it is in the translation. It wasn't my translation. So, um, and so the Buddha said, and here he's trying to explain that um, the difference, because those conditions arise for everyone. He's not saying that when you really practice a lot, you don't have these factors arise. They keep on arising for everyone. In fact, the Buddha, uh, as is pretty well known, uh, in the latter part of his life had a bad back and was often in pain, and sometimes had to ask one of his, um, I guess, disciples, we might say, to give the evening talk because his back was hurting too much. And he also sometimes had headaches. I find these facts very encouraging. (laughs) Uh, Partly because it makes him much more human, and secondly, because the tradition hasn't mythologized things too much. For both of those reasons, I find it encouraging to hear about this. So, uh, so what's, what's the answer to the question? He says, and he gives the example of gain. He starts with the example of gain, but it really is, is true for all of the eight. He says, 
gain arises for an uninstructed person. That person does not reflect gain has arisen for me. In other words, that person is not mindful, doesn't really know what's happening. So you can start to see how to practice. Uh, first, would just know that it's happening. That person does not reflect gain has arisen for me. It is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering and subject to change. In other words, it doesn't see certain qualities, doesn't see how it's passing, doesn't last forever, how if one acts in a certain way with it, it can lead to suffering. If one grabs hold of it, its tendency would be to lead to suffering and subject to change. With such a person, gain, loss, and so forth consume that person's mind. In other words, a person gets preoccupied. Think of, I don't know, someone dealing with the stock market with gain, right? That the gain and loss consume that person's mind. When gain comes, the person is elated, and when there is loss, that person is dejected. Being thus involved, that person will not, I say, be free of suffering. Be a lot of suffering connected with that relationship to gain and loss in the others. Now, gain arises for a practitioner. That practitioner reflects, gain has arisen for me. So there's mindfulness. There's awareness that it's happening. It is impermanent, liable to lead to suffering. It doesn't necessarily lead to suffering. Gain itself is not the problem. It's what we do with it. Liable to lead to suffering and subject to change. The practitioner understands these conditions. With such a person, gain, loss, and so forth do not consume the mind. When gain comes, that person will not be elated. And when there is loss, that person will not be dejected. That person will be free, I say, from suffering. This is the difference, the distinction, the, distinguish, the distinguishing factor because between the practitioner and the uninstructed person. And then he goes on to generalize about these eight conditions. Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, these conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. That person's welcoming and rebelling are scattered. The welcoming of the positive, you know, the grabbing hold of the positive, and rebelling against when things happen that one doesn't want. Gone to their end, they do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, that person discerns rightly. So that's, that's the, one of the original discourses where the Buddha talks about the, these eight. So let's unpack this a little bit and look more carefully at the nature of these eight states and how to practice with it. And I would say, in general, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak briefly now about how to practice with these eight and then come back to that at the end. Because what I'll be encouraging all of us to do, including myself, is to have a sense of practice if we feel called in this way for the next week. And guess what? The eight factors are going to be there in everyone's life. <laughs> Guarantee that. In fact, uh, they're probably happening, they're all happening right now, <laughs> at least some of them. Uh, so, three ways to practice. First is just be mindful, 
be aware that they're happening. Number one. Number two, explore their nature. When they're happening, explore what it's like in the mind, the body, the heart. Where does your mind go when there is a loss, let's say, when there's a gain? What's its relationship to pleasure and pain, to praise and blame? How do we work with this? You know? And then thirdly, uh, what's a wise response? when these are occurring. And part of a wise response is to be mindful and to explore. But are there some other ways that we can respond? Partly related to the question we just had about anger. A wise response to blame in the moment might not be to react back right away. So those three simple guidelines for practice, be mindful, know that it's happening, explore, and respond as skillfully as possible. And we'll come back to that at the, at the, end, of the, um, at the end of my talk. And, and I'll encourage us really to work with those guidelines and any others that seem to make sense for you and, and report back what you find. So in some sense, this is um, uh, the teaching about these eight factors is a teaching that unpacks some of the conditions which lead to suffering. It's a really unpacking uh, in more uh, depth and precision of the um, first and second noble truth that the, that the Buddha taught. The first truth that there is suffering, the second the cause of suffering being in grasping. And we could also add it's not just in grasping, but it's in pushing away. You know, it's in that, it's basically in resistance in some way to what's happening in which we kind of somewhat compulsively grab hold of or push away. Now, this doesn't mean at all that we should just be passive with what's happening. And I'll continually weave in that thread. This is not a teaching about passivity. This is a teaching about watching what tends to happen to our minds and hearts and bodies when these eight conditions occur, and then learning how to work with that so we can respond as fully and wisely as we can. So it doesn't just mean someone says something nasty to you and you just say, blame. (laughs) And just sit there, you know, and just say, the teaching is just to not do anything. That's not really the teaching, but it's to particularly to see where there's a hook. That's really what the teaching is about, to see where there's a hook, as it were, from either the good stuff or the bad stuff. And that permits us actually to respond much more fully with any of these conditions. And the aim is also not to get rid of these eight, particularly. It's not to get rid of uh, praise and blame, gain and loss and so forth as we experience these in our lives, but it's to be able to respond wisely when they occur. We can't get rid of them actually. You know, even um, the Buddha was criticized a lot, you know. He had to work with that. As I mentioned, there was pleasure and pain. You know, we have all of these, as it were, coming at us. We all have gain and loss occur. We all have, sometimes uh, are, are seen well by others and sometimes not. Sometimes it's out of our control, right? 
And so how do we work with that? That's really the, the question. So it's a, in a way, it's an unpacking about the different ways we get hooked. It's a naming of them so that we can look out for them and recognize them more easily. And it's a very direct, simple teaching, isn't it? It's just saying, look out for these eight. They're, they're key. <laughs> they're key. Notice them. And it's really to ask us to notice, to explore, partly just to ask, how much does my well-being depend on these eight lining up the way I want them to? And as was evident in the end of that uh, teaching, what's being pointed to is the possibility of our well-being and our happiness resting in something deeper about ourselves than these eight conditions. In other words, is there a part of ourselves in which we can take refuge, rest in, get to know better, related to those qualities of wisdom and compassion and metta and equanimity? Can we rest there in a way which gives us something deeper than resting for our happiness and whether things go well or not? So it's a challenging teaching. I don't want to pretend that it isn't. It's because I think we all get, um, I certainly do, and I imagine that most of you get caught by the good stuff and really get reactive towards the hard stuff. And so it's really, it's really to look at that and work with it and know that this is all, all workable. So it's the question of how can we find more balance when these things occur? How can we have more equanimity, wisdom, and compassion. So as we go through these eight, uh, I'd like to invite you to reflect, which of these is the hardest for me? You know, how do I relate to each of the eight? Are there some which are more challenging or less challenging than others? You know, you may say, pleasure and pain is a piece of cake, so to speak. But praise and blame, oh, that's a hard one, <laughs> right? So, so let's, go through, let's go through the eight. Um, so pleasure and pain. According to the teachings of what's called Vedana, or the feeling tone, pleasure and pain are actually occurring moment to moment. They're happening all the time. And we're, to a significant extent, driven by them. In fact, you can even check in right now and see what's happening right now. And if, we, if pain is, is an overly interpretive term, we can use the terms pleasant and unpleasant. So that might be more helpful for some of us, not to use the word pain, but just to say pleasant and unpleasant. So not so, yeah. And, and so even right now, you can check in with your body. What's the feeling tone right now? It might be neutral, it might be mildly pleasant, it might be mildly unpleasant if you, you know, something is disagreeable in the body right now. Um, and it's happening, it's happening in a sense all the time. Uh, Jack Kornfield often, uh, in his teaching, he gives the example of how when we reflect on just what happens when we wake up, we can have a sense of how we're always somewhat pushed and pulled by pleasure and pain, or by the pleasant and the unpleasant. Think of it, you wake up, okay? You wake up. Maybe an alarm goes off. 
and your first senses might be unpleasant. Oh, it's still so early. You know, why do I have to get up now? Unpleasant. And then you say, I have to go to work or I have to go hear the Dharma talk. <laughs> right. And you, um, and so there, there's a little bit of sense of unpleasure. And then you say, oh, maybe just, maybe just a few minutes more. And then you kind of relax back, and then there's pleasure. Right? And then you say, oops, I really have to get up. And your body tenses, a little bit of unpleasant sensations. And then you get up a little while, and then you realize, oh, I better go to the bathroom. Unpleasant, right? Unpleasant little pressure in the, in the system. Unpleasant. Then you go to the bathroom. After that, more pleasant. <laughs> right? And then you start, then you say, oh, I'm hungry. Unpleasant. And then you go and look for what's to eat, and you have some pleasant thoughts of what's to eat. You eat some pleasant sensations, but maybe eat too much. Unpleasant. <laughs> and so the day goes. <laughs> you get a sense of that. You know, and it's, it's pretty strong. You know, we're really, especially for those of us who may uh, live with a certain amount of comfort, which many of us do, maybe not all of us, but some of us have a certain amount of comfort. And um, I know for myself, when I've traveled to um, other countries with, with lesser comfort levels, I really notice that I feel a little bit pampered. Kind of interesting that I'm a little bit attached to pleasure. I remember going to... Um, uh, I made a trip right before the Soviet Union ended to the Soviet Union, and a lot of the conditions were pretty uh, primitive in some ways. Um, they didn't, you know, even uh, Western-style toilet paper was very uncommon, you know. And there were you couldn't you couldn't go even there were you couldn't even go to like a cafe or get food very easily. And I remember just feeling kind of uncomfortable with the whole situation, or you know, other times traveling, also like that when the conditions are you're even just being away from home, right? You're at a hotel or a motel or a friend's house. You sleep on the couch, right? You can, and, and so just to see how we so much orient around pleasure and pain is very illuminating. It's something to study, something to study in the next week and to, to really look. What's, my, what's happening right now? How much am I motivated by going for pleasant sensations? You know. Uh, probably for many of us, when we, many of us, when we have something unpleasant happen, we try to compensate by having something pleasant occur. How many people occasionally uh, use food in that way? <laughs> uh, something to study, some, something really to look at. How do we do that? Again, not to blame it, but just to see what's there. Just to, again, be mindful, to explore. It's also very interesting to see that pleasant and unpleasant often is very fleeting. A lot of what we really are driven by doesn't last very long. And often, you know, we want to have something to eat that's really wonderful, and often when we're eating it, we don't even taste it. It's very interesting how we, how we work. We're driven for these sensations, and often, you know, and often we are not even tasting it, but reaching for the next bite. You know, it's very interesting to, to look at, so we can study that, to really to see that. Study how we try to avoid the unpleasant. So gain and loss. 
very interesting also. You know, I, um, this morning I, I brought in the newspaper because I, I think that sometimes I think of the newspapers as um, it could be subtitled the San Francisco Chronicle of the Eight Worldly Winds. <laughs> you know, and they even have certain pages of the newspaper where they deliberately chronicle gains and losses. I was thinking, like, here's the, here's the sports pages, right? They even, if you look, here are the baseball standings, and they're organized in terms of gain and loss. It's called the win-loss column. You know, you know? And or the, you know, the stock market accounts. They're kind of like gains and losses. The whole, and I'm not um, saying it shouldn't be organized that way. But it's, it's just interesting to see how pervasive all of this is, or, you know, you know, or to look at this and to see that the, a lot in the newspaper, it's really about different gains and different losses. Uh, like yesterday, Michael Phelps lost. Some of you know. Michael Phelps lost, but the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's won. They gained. They gained. Phelps lost. And also, um, there were losses to um, um, the health and welfare budgets for many. You know about that, that major budget. There are major losses for funds for domestic violence, AIDS outreach, uh, uh, black infant health, and so forth. You know, so pretty, you know, so very significant losses. So those could be something to respond to, but we can also see what that does to us, partly to... You know, you read about these different experiences. What does that What does that do to our psyche? You know, and I'm not saying we uh, again. Should, it's not about passivity. It's about really noticing what happens. And if if you read about some of the losses and you feel some uh, sadness or anger, that might be very appropriate. But how do you act on it? Does it then send you into Do you get locked into the sense of the loss, which could be depression or cynicism or despair? That would be a problem. That would be letting the eight winds take you over. Yeah. So it's not about not responding. And it's a very powerful area, gain and loss, just to see, uh, just to see what we do. Sometimes you know, we have some kinds of gains and losses we can handle, but some of them can really take us for a spin, right? You know, obviously, um, <coughs> someone dies, someone is ill, can be very, very hard on us. And we can look at that. That's part of this inquiry. To see that, you know, I know that for many of us, we we end a relationship that's been there for a while, and it can really um, send us into a spin. Or, or the opposite, maybe, <laughs> could be send us into tremendous relief and celebration for some. But but for it could go in different directions. But often it can be very hard. There's a loss. What do we do with it? And it's partly to invite us to look in that way. What does the mind do? What stories do we tell? How does it work? You know? And not to say at all again that there shouldn't be <coughs> sadness or grief, but to what extent do we get caught, as it were, blown by the winds? One of my uh, favorite stories that I, I think I've told here once or twice is a story about gain and loss that I heard from really my first... Um, probably my first mentor in meditation, who is Larry Rosenberg, who teaches at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And Larry was really encouraging me quite a long time ago to uh, do more teaching, encouraging me in the practice and so forth. And 
he, um, he told a story from his own experience that really has totally stayed with me about gain and loss. And it's a story of, uh, I think it's from the 1970s, when he was uh, studying with the Korean Zen teacher, uh, Sun Sunim. And he was scheduled to lead a four-day Zen retreat that was happening right after Christmas. And uh, a little bit before Christmas, he was staying at the Cambridge Zen Center and living there along with a bunch of other people. And right before uh, Christmas, uh, almost, I think, virtually everyone went home who was staying at the center. This was um, the time when meditation centers had a, you know, uh, I guess the uh, demographics have changed, but people were mostly in their 20s and 30s at that point. And most of the people who were staying at the Zen Center went home to stay with their families and celebrate the holidays, and Larry, being Jewish, did not do that. And he stayed. But the uh, trouble was, uh, by the time of the retreat, uh, no one had signed up for the retreat. Zero. And so Larry went to uh, his teacher and asked him, well, I guess we should cancel the retreat. No one signed up. And his teacher said, no, I want you to lead the retreat. <laughs> he said, but there's, there's no one there. No one signed up. I want you to lead it anyway. So it's a little more hierarchical system. There wasn't, that was the, kind of the end of the discussion. Right? So um, Larry, um, I think it started the day after Christmas, and so he started leading the retreat. He was the only one there. There were no people who, whom he was teaching. And his teacher had also said, I want you to do everything the same way you would do as if there were a lot of people at the retreat. So, you know, in Zen they do a lot of bowing and a lot of ritual. And he said, I also want you to give the talks. And so Larry uh, did that. He bowed, he did the rituals, he also gave the talks, in the, you know, which I, I think were a few times a day. And he said that uh, for the first day, he really felt really, really foolish <laughs> and wondered what he was doing and wondered about the wisdom of his teacher. And then, uh, after the first day, something clicked. And he felt like, this is pretty cool. And he could see that there was something he was learning, which essentially was to have something that would motivate him that was not dependent, in a sense, on the numbers. And, and he carried on with the retreat the last three days, and he said something actually very profound happened to him. He said, since that time, he has not been very influenced by people talking about numbers of people who attend retreats. Because, you know, in the, in the meditation community, among meditation teachers or whatever, uh, there's also ideas about gain and loss, or what's a lot or what's good, you know. How many people came to the retreat, you know, at Spirit Rock? Oh, it was really full. There were, you know, 90 people and 10 commuters, and, oh, good retreat, right? <laughs> and how many people signed up for the retreat? You know, like 12 out of a capacity of 85. Not so good, huh? And so Larry said that after that experience, those sort of thoughts, when he heard them, he would smile. <laughs> 
there was something that was touched that really, in a sense, told him something deeper than, in this sense, that quality of gain and loss represented by numbers. And I think that's, that's kind of the direction that's being pointed to. So he got a chance to work with that. Very interesting, isn't it, to, to, to work with that. So fame and disrepute. Uh, also, um, can be can be factors that really influence us, and it's not necessarily fame with that we might be looking for. It might just be how do we look in the eyes of others, in the eyes of those who uh, matter to us. It could be our self-image or how we think we're seen, you know, which is, can be very fundamental for us, you know. And and I, I know for. Uh, probably many or maybe most of us, can be really a big issue. How you're seen by others. Do you have a bad reputation? Are you, how are you, what, evaluated at work? How are you seen by your friends? What happens when you feel that you're seen in a bad light or even you know, misinterpreted and so forth? It can be very, very powerful for us. Um, and it also becomes something that we can explore can really, uh, can really uh, notice more carefully, can, can see how much we um, are bound up in those ideas. You know? And some people, of course, are really bound up in wanting to be famous, right? And it does seem to motivate a certain number of people. Um, and so, again, something to look at. Again, the, the practice would be to name it when it's there, to name the reaction to wanting, it could be more that we're wanting attention. You know, maybe that's another way to translate it. Not so much we want fame, but I want attention because there's something from a psychological perspective, the sense of being seen for who we are is a very, very deep uh, impulse for many, if not all of us. And when we feel like I'm not seen or I'm not recognized or I'm seen inaccurately, it can be very painful. And we can also, that can um, sometimes distort our behavior when we constantly want attention. And so it's something to look at. There can be a lot of learning in different ways. And the last is the set of praise and blame. For many of us, that might actually be the most powerful. Am I praised? Am I blamed? It's really you know, because our minds and our hearts sometimes translate that into, am I loved? Which may be, again, really related to being seen. It's really most, maybe what we most long for. And when we're, when we're cared for, loved, and seen accurately, often we don't want much else. You know? So there are very, very fundamental aspects of us. And we can really um, be very, very reactive when we're praised or blamed. We can just, again, want to somehow, I know I, when I look at myself, I can see myself sometimes just being in a situation and just kind of wanting someone to praise me. Isn't that interesting? How many can relate to that? <laughs> just for the majority, let's put it that way. And, and we can just somehow, and, and so it's something to study. What, happen, what does that look like when we somehow have that urge, you know, oh, wouldn't it be great if someone... I'm not going to say it overtly, but I would sure like someone to say something nice right now. 
you know, or something like that. Or, or when we get uh, criticized, it can, be, we can, it can be very, very hard, you know. And, you know, I know from looking at my own experience, you know, and there's some, there's some um, situations that really stand out in my memory, like about uh, a little over 10 years ago, I did a book on the work of Ken Wilber, uh, kind of transpersonal psychologist. How many people know his work? Well, quite a few of you. And I did a book which was a collection of uh, different essays on his work, and I wrote about a quarter of the book. And uh, uh, after it was done, he really didn't like it, in part because we raised issues about it not being entirely true. <laughs> anyway, it's a little complicated, but um, trying to have critical discussion of. But anyway, that's that's my perspective, but. Um, about a year after the book came out, he published an essay that probably was seen by 20,000 people in which he really severely criticized my book. <laughs> and, and implicitly me, you know. I think actually directly he criticized uh, me. And it was the first time I had been criticized so publicly. Uh, and I noticed I had some reactions. <laughs> Partly because it was quite public. And partly because I thought it was extremely unfair, you know, and mean-spirited. And, um, and I remember that I, uh, I noticed a lot of things going on in my mind. And it, I think it later, it was one of the pivotal factors which led me on, on the way to actually coming to the point where I've been teaching a lot now on, on judgments and getting judged, and I'm writing a book on the topic. So, <laughs> so but in any case... Uh, I remember I did a retreat uh, uh, shortly after that happened, and it was a big theme on the retreat. I would just notice it, and it was, such a, it was something to study. It t- told me a lot about whatever residue there was that made me reactive about that. Because <clears throat> in the long run, I, I think, again, this is what we're kind of pointing to here, and I think what the teaching is pointing to, is there a way that I can really rest in myself with and with a little more equanimity and maybe confidence that just lets things be what they are. That's, that's the direction that, that this practice uh, takes us. And so maybe just to say one or two more things and then we'll open things up a little bit. Uh, the invitation for the next week is to explore these states when they come. And again, I'll, I'll repeat that sense of a threefold practice first just to name them when they're there, especially in a, in a strong way. Pleasure and pain, pleasant and unpleasant, are, in some sense, even in mild forms, there all the time, moment to moment. But you might do an experiment just like that. Do that experiment. Study pleasant and unpleasant tomorrow morning. See if you just... It's, there's something humorous. And notice how much we're, we're driven by pleasant and unpleasant. There can be something a little humorous in it. <clears throat> so name it, explore what it's like, explore what these states actually are about, explore what the mind does, the body does, the heart does when these eight states come up. What are your patterns connected with it? What happens when you get um, blame, when you have blame coming your way? What kind of reaction is there? What's your relationship to praise? What happens when there's a loss, even a small loss? You know, there's a small loss, like, I don't know, a friend that you really care about 
uh, abruptly cancels a dinner that you're going to have. And what do you, what's your experience then? Just very ordinary kinds of experiences. So second, explore. Notice the impermanent quality of um, these phenomena. They come and go. Notice the extent to which they're connect, the reactions are connected with suffering. Study that. And then thirdly, see how to respond wisely. I won't say so much about that, maybe more next time, but just ask yourself as you look at this, what's a wise response? I'll just end by again saying that the point of this is to be, I think on the one hand, be familiar with our patterns that are connected with suffering so that we can transform them. On the other hand, it's to point towards resting more and more in something deeper that is in a sense um, deeper than whether or not any of these eight conditions are present. And that would be our deeper sense of awareness, equanimity, care, love. Something that is, that is, um, that can potentially be there no matter what happens. That's the direction that we are going. We'll say more about that uh, next time. So let's just sit for about 30 seconds or a minute and then we can have some time together talking. Thanks so much for your attention. And any reflections or questions? And I'll try to repeat them so everyone can hear. Please, yeah. Okay, um, and let's say our names also. Uh, so we, I'm The great, uh, yeah, I, um, was that, were you complete, Debbie? Yes. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, everyone here? It, it's, um, and it, it may have something to do with the translation. Uh, and I, it's something I, I can check on maybe another translation. Uh, the question is about where, where the, um, 
let's say, the so-called uninstructed person, um, when gain comes, that person will not be elated, and when there is loss, that person will not be dejected. Uh, Certainly, looking at my own experience and that of everyone I know who works with this practice, it's um, my sense of the teaching is would add the adjective unduly, (laughs) unduly elated or unduly dejected. And my sense is that the teaching, and again, I I can check on this because I don't think that's what's being pointed to, is just to be uh, have no affect. (laughs) or to somehow, um, I think it is to point to a pretty steady emotional state that doesn't get knocked around a lot. But I don't, certainly in my experience, the way I interpret this teaching is to um, certainly let there be sadness for a loss, you know, a death you know, or a less significant loss. But the, the, the key is whether one gets really hooked by it and, you know, with the loss is dejected in a way which, which stays or which um, um, becomes more permanent in some way. Uh, and so I think I would tend to interpret that as, as adding the phrase unduly, unduly elated, unduly dejected. And, to, and it's really, you know, con- very concretely it would mean, um, let's say that I have a loss. Let's say something doesn't, uh, you know, let's say I have a difficult interaction with a friend. And in a sense, it seems like the friendship is ending, okay? Uh, and I can be quite sad about that. That seems to me completely appropriate to be sad about that loss of the friendship. To what extent do I get involved with then blaming the friend, criticizing and blaming myself, and brooding over it for hours and hours and hours? That, I think, is what's being questioned. And so it's really to notice the, you know, the commentary, the additions, the reactions. But I think that the certainly way I interpret it is that there is and I think that may be what the words elated and dejected, again, those, I'll have to see what the translations are, but simply to have, to be sad at loss, to be, to be um, uh, uh, happy when something beautiful happens seems very natural to me. So I'm, it's possible I may differ from the Buddha here, or we may differ, <laughs> but, but um, that's, that's, that's certainly how I practice. It's, but you can see, and because there wouldn't be, su- the, the key is the suffering. If there's just sadness with that kind of loss, there's not necessarily going to be suffering. Sadness isn't, doesn't lead to suffering. Brooding over it, blaming myself or other, that leads to suffering. Right? Sadness by itself is not suffering. So does that unpack it some? Yeah, that I, that's sort of how I feel. Yeah. I was wondering, like you said, if I, do I differ from the Buddha? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Are we giving a Northern California psychotherapeutic <laughs> version of the book? <laughs> uh, please, in back, and then, and then in front. Yeah. Just to comment on that, I'm, 
understand things. It was thousands of years ago, and it was a different culture. I mean, we're different now as far as our yeah. culture and pursuing material goods and wanting to be happy all the time. And I think it's hard to interpret. <clears throat> I don't know how to interpret. I don't know because I wasn't there. They didn't have videotape. <laughs> I don't know. They had internal videotape. Okay, sorry. No, but I just don't... Yeah, we have to... There is cultural exchange going on, and we have to be sensitive to the differences. It's also uh, primarily being taught to a monastic sangha, you know, monks and nuns, and we have different lives. But I think I would... um, I think I would respond to Debbie's question. I think I imagine that virtually all the Spirit Rock teachers would give a response something like what I gave which is that the, uh, and, and again, it may be a little bit, it may be especially there for, for uh, gain and loss, you know, as opposed to some of the others. But it's mostly, because the key always that we're looking for is, is there reactivity? Just having sadness or happiness is not necessarily reactivity. Reactivity is characterized by a certain compulsivity, repetition, uh, usually lack of mindfulness, and uh, some strong resistance to things being the way they are. So, the, um, so I think there, there may be some... I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll look into that and report back next time about... I'll look into the translation some. But I think that's how I would work with that. Did, did you want to add to that point? I did. Yeah. Um, my name is Maggie, and I, I uh, particularly in high school had to do with um, elation and there was a big, that was a big attachment to me of being, when I was elated. Um, and now that I'm um, in, in this mindfulness practice, um, I find that when I come into elatedness or come into something that is happy, or um, I find that I go much more into contentment than into the elated sense I find I'm much more wary when I start to go into this elated sense that everything's great and will always be great and it's great and like like that sort of life is wonderful feeling. Instead, I go, well, maybe that's not the right response and maybe going into more of a contented feeling of like, this is really nice right now <laughs> feeling. It seems much more rooted to me. Mm-hmm. That's something I want to share that. Yeah, I think I think it's something like that. Like sometimes... Uh, at times we may have a sense, if I'm not feeling this way, I'm not okay. Yeah. Right? If I'm not feeling totally jazzed or whatever it is, <laughs> totally jazzed, excited, uh, I'm not, if, you know, if nothing is, I mean, I think it's very big in our culture. If we're not having 3,000 kinds of stimuli happening at the present moment, then life has no meaning. Uh, and so that's something to look at because it's really, uh, I think that's what this teaching is pointing to. Is there a quality of contentment or balance or openness that can be there no matter what's happening? That's really what's being pointed to. Please. Yeah. Um, and let's say your name I also. Margaret. Yeah. And I just was the other day rereading William Blake's uh, He Who Clings Unto a Joy Doth the Wind of Fame Destroy. Yeah. 
line that hit me the most. Yeah, thank you. That he who kisses the joy good bye lives in eternity sunrise. I thought that was, I got that in a whole new way. That it's about, you know, not saying you're only so present. Yeah. For what comes in you every moment. That's, that's right, not, not so attached. And yeah, it makes me thank you for the William Blake poem, very, very beautiful. And makes me think about when um, I had a meditation group that I told that pleasure, and, pleasure is not the problem. And I, uh, I said, we could, um, next meeting, just eat chocolate the whole meeting. And that'd be fine. The problem is getting attached to the chocolate. And they said, let's test that. <laughs> and so we did. <laughs> Please. Uh, I was speaking in the Chronicle today. There's a, there's a short interview with Madoff, yeah. his lawyer. And one of the questions really knocked me out, his answer. He, he said, the lawyer asked him, he said, why did, why did you think you were going to get, how did you think you were going to get away with this? And he said, no one bothered to ask the simple questions. And I found that very powerful in life. Yeah. Don't bother to ask the simple questions. How we, we, we are we're afraid to, to, to look at something and ask a dumb question to go. Do I really want it? Do I really need that? Or, I, I don't know, but that answer to me just spun my head. Around. Yeah, we're so taken away by the desire to have gain, or in this right. case, undue gain, right, or large gain. Because yeah. a man who first discovered it said, "I looked at his books for five minutes and I knew this was wrong." Yeah. And, every, and this has been going on for years. Yeah. And I love that idea that asks a simple question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Maybe last one, and then we'll have to close. Is, was it uh, Brendan? Brendan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciated what you said in the back about, uh, like, why uh, are we really wanting to not have this, uh, this up and down? And that's something I struggle with myself, is that, um, like, uh, a lot of me feels like my my sense of humanity is connected in that uh, flux and constant change. So um, I was gonna basically ask the same question uh, right before you said that, uh, and something came to me actually uh, while I was thinking, uh, which I wanted to share, which is um, something that my dad has shared with me all growing up is about the weather. And what he uh, says to me <clears throat> is that there's no uh, bad weather, only bad attitudes. <laughs> and, uh, and that just like came up for me in that um, in that uh, there's the there's the sun and the rain and the hail and all sorts of things, and all of it can be very fascinating and very much part of our aliveness and the. Uh, the, we don't know what's coming next, and um, and uh, I just realized that. And sometimes I get all wound up in the weather of like, no, I don't want it to be foggy anymore. I don't, you know, whatever. But um, I realize that sometimes uh, when the sun comes out, uh, I just have this huge sense of joy, and I don't think the Buddha is saying that that's bad. Um, I think that that's a huge sense of joy. And then the rain comes and it's like, oh man, I have to set up my tent. Or I don't know, it's some kind of uh, other uh, concern, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, something, 
and that's what I appreciate about what you said of the the sadness isn't inherently bad. It's the suffering that we attach to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just had to share that story. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, Brendan. So, yeah, because the original metaphor is weather is weather related. The winds, <laughs> the winds that bring the weather, the changing weather. So. How many of you, in closing, would like to look at the w weather for the next, for the next week? <laughs> okay. uh, so I'll invite that. Remember those three ways, mindfulness, exploration, and then see what skillful response means. Three, three ways of practicing. And we'll, I'll intend to talk a little less than usual so we have more time for dialogue. Uh, but I, there are a lot of stories and poems that I, that I didn't get to read, so they have for next time. And so, um, yeah, that's, it's powerful, isn't it? It's very direct, powerful, and I appreciate the discussion. And I'll, I'll do a little bit of research to find out. Uh, I think that translation might be different. Uh, certainly most people who interpret this, you know, like, uh, I mean, you just hear the, the text talking about the Buddha, they called him the happy one. He wasn't called the no-affect guy. <laughs> right, he, wasn't called the, he wasn't called the stoic guy. He was called happy. It was said to be joy. And you read about the people when they were just hanging out, they are just hanging out in joy all the time. So, uh, so I'll, I'll research that a little bit, but it's, it's a great discussion. So let's just sit to close, just for, sit for about a minute to close. Letting what's been helpful from the morning, as well as your intentions for looking at the eight winds in the next week. Knowing that we do this um, practice, not just for ourselves, but for others as well, we offer the benefits of the morning out beyond these walls for the healing, for the transformation, for ultimately for the freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.